navigate the journey to becoming a great lawyer with expert guidance on topics that range from trial skills to corner office management. Here you will learn how to tap into your potential for legal greatness. I'm Andrew Smiley, and this is The Mentor, ESQ. Thank you all for joining me on this snowy March day. Happy to have you back for part three of our litigating medical malpractice case series. And today we're going to be talking about commencing the action, starting the lawsuit. Before we get into it, I just want to go over a few couple of uh, points, ground rules types of things. And the first uh, that I always want to mention is what a great organization the New York State Academy of Trial Lawyers is. If you are not a member, uh, please join, especially if you've been enjoying CLEs and enjoying the benefits of uh, the Academy. Uh, join, and there's so much more to get involved in and be a part of. So we'd love for you to become a member. Uh, the other thing I wanted to mention is that uh, I will be commencing the second season of the mentorship program on April 19th. Some of you are, have already attended my mentorship program, and many of you uh, have inquired about it. So the next season of it starts April 19th. Uh, Michelle is going to drop in the chat a link to the application form uh, where you can see what it's all about. And so I hope you all can join me uh, starting in April for that. And lastly, uh, as most of you know, when I have these CLE presentations, I really enjoy your interaction. So please use the chat feature uh, to put in comments, questions, feedback, uh, so that we can see what everyone's thoughts are on different topics as I, as I go through it. And if there's specific questions, uh, I will perhaps answer them as this goes along. But if not, definitely we do a QA, and uh, a which is always pretty good stuff from 2 to 2.30. I usually need every bit of time that I can squeeze out of this hour. So let's get to it. Commencing the action. Why do we do this? What's it all about? Why do we file lawsuits? Well, the primary reason is because we can't settle these cases without filing a lawsuit. That has been my experience as a practitioner handling medical malpractice cases for almost 30 years. I can only think of maybe one or two that I was able to resolve without filing a lawsuit. And that's perhaps because of a relationship maybe I had with a carrier on a case or uh, a specific hospital uh, where maybe I know the person in charge of claims and got their attention and they had the ability. But for the most part, contrary to certainly popular belief of potential clients who always ask me, well, can't you just send a letter and maybe, you know, they see I've got a lawyer, you know, they'll want to settle a case and we won't have to litigate it. And that just doesn't happen. The reality, the harsh reality for plaintiff's lawyers is that if you are taking on a medical malpractice lawsuit or claim or a potential action, um, you are most likely going to need to get underway and litigate the case. If you're thinking that it's a really, really strong case and all you got to do is send a claim letter, maybe you don't even need to spend money on experts, uh, you are mistaken and uh, you are in for a rude awakening. Uh, you need to, when you are screening these cases, as we've talked about in the prior uh, parts of the series, you need to assess everything and know whether you have a case or not and know whether you're going to litigate it or not. Look, it's okay to say to a client, I don't think it's a strong enough case to litigate. Uh, you can send a claim letter and give it a shot. 
Uh, but I would be very surprised if you have any true success with doing that. So you're going to need to commence a lawsuit to move the medical malpractice case forward on that journey uh, of ultimately getting a good resolution uh, for your client. And uh, that is obviously if you're a plaintiff's lawyer. I know many of my defense colleagues are in attendance today, and I thank you for uh, showing up and listening to what I have to say. Uh, so this doesn't really apply to you. You will get involved in the case usually uh, once that lawsuit is commenced and it lands on your desk or in your email box. That's when you'll get involved. So all this behind the scenes initial work usually is on the plaintiff side to get it into the litigation. I know sometimes defense counsel will be consulted, perhaps in a claims stage uh, by the carrier or the hospital or the medical facility. Um, if you are contacted to review it early, um, I encourage you and I encourage my um, insurance representative colleagues out there and claims representatives to try and maybe change this so that lawsuits don't have to always be filed. Um, if you get a claim letter and if you have a plaintiff's attorney that reaches out to you prior to litigation and is willing to give you records, is willing to give you their theories of the case, take a really strong look at it. You can save a lot of money in litigation expenses um, and you can resolve the case probably for a lot less than you'll ultimately have to pay uh, at the end of litigation before trial. I can tell you how many times, it's almost 99% uh, of the time uh, I get turned down with regard to trying to resolve one of these cases early by the defense or by the insurance company or by the hospital or doctor. And then ultimately the case resolves after all of this time and money is spent by everybody. And it ends up getting resolved for a lot more than what uh, it could have been resolved for earlier on. So that's what happens. Nothing, nothing before filing suit usually. So get ready, get ready to file a suit. Okay. And you need to move. If you're a plaintiff, you need to move your cases. You're not doing yourself, your firm, or your client any good if that medical malpractice case is sitting on a desk or you're hoping that it gets resolved or you're you know, uh, wasting away months prior to filing it. You need to file it to get it moving, okay? So that's what you need to do. And when, when do you file these cases? Well, first, let's talk about statute of limitations. The statute of limitations in New York, and I know many of you attending today or listening on the podcast are not in New York State. So statute of limitations are state specific. It is state law that governs each state's statute of limitations. But in New York State, it is two years and six months. That's two and a half years from the date of the malpractice. Now that's easy to determine if the wrong limb gets operated on or something happens during a surgery, right? We know the date of the malpractice and then you just calculate two years and six months. But what if we're not really sure when the malpractice occurred? Maybe it's a failure to diagnose. Maybe it happened during the course of treatment. So things can get a little shady here when trying to figure out statute of limitations. And I'll talk about uh, a few of the scenarios and what to consider. But at its basic, two years and six months from the date of malpractice in New York to file it. Always, 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 that should be one of the first questions that you ask 
when you are screening a potential medical malpractice case is when was the surgery? When was the treatment? When do you think the malpractice occurred? Try and get an idea because if you're talking to them and it's looking to you like, wow, this surgery was done two years and four months ago, uh, you need to make a quick note of that and decide whether or not you think you can screen the case, do the homework we've already talked about to get you to the point of filing. Always keep an eye on the statute of limitations. You do not want to sit on a case for six months or a year and then have the statute expire. That opens you up to a legal malpractice case and you're not doing right by your client. So know what the statute of limitations are. If it is a wrongful death that occurs from medical malpractice, they go in for some treatment or surgery and they die as a result of the malpractice, or you believe that you have a case that the malpractice caused the subsequent death, then the statute of limitations is two years from the date of death. As long as that time period is within the two and a half years uh, statute of limitation for a medical malpractice case. Okay, so if the person dies with, let's say, two years after the malpractice, then you have two years from the date of death. Okay, it extends it. It extends the time. So it's two years from the date of death. But if two years and six months goes by from the malpractice, and then the person dies, okay, um, you're going to be out of luck because your two years, that death, uh, the timeline accrues, when it accrues has to be within the two years and six months of malpractice. So it's only that two years from the death, but it's still two years and six months uh, statute of limitation. Now let's talk about foreign object discovery. Classic scenario, someone goes in for surgery, they leave uh, a scissors in the person's abdomen and they close everything up or they leave some instrumentation, something that is a foreign object. Foreign objects are things that aren't supposed to be there. Sutures are not foreign objects. They are supposed to be there. Staples are usually supposed to be there. Um, you know, uh, saws, uh, scissors, uh, sponges, these are foreign objects that are not supposed to be left in your body if you go in for surgery. But maybe the patient doesn't know it was there. And so all of a sudden, uh, two and a half years or three years after the surgery, that object starts migrating into their colon and causes problems or into their bladder. Who knows what can happen? And they're, they go in for, to the doctor. The x-ray reveals there's a scissors in you. Um, then it's one year from the date of discovery. It makes sense. The theory is if you have no reason to know it was done to you and it's in there, no one told you, once you discover it, you have a year from the date of discovery. The other thing to consider is continuous treatment. There's a doctrine in this area of law where the lawsuit can be filed from the last date of treatment for the condition that you believe or the client believes and the experts believe is when the malpractice occurred. So for example, let's say the patient goes in for surgery, um, they come out of the surgery, uh, the surgery was done two years ago, um, and after the surgery on their shoulder, they just don't have any strength or sensation in their hand. 
And the physician, the surgeon says, we're going to get this right and starts sending them to neurologists, starts doing imaging, starts treating them. And they come back each month saying, my hand still isn't right. All right. The last date of the treatment from that physician who continued to treat the patient for an injury or a complication following that surgery, that will toll or extend the statute beyond the two years and six months. All right. So you always want to look. And so maybe the surgery was two years and five months ago, but they continue to treat for another six, seven, eight months for the same condition that they're complaining about with the same physician or same hospital. That is going to toll your statute of limitations to the last date of treatment. As a practical consideration, try not to rely on that. I always, if there's time and you're reviewing a case, don't say, well, we've got extra time. We don't need to get this filed in three months because that's when the two years and six months expires because they continue to treat. So we've got until the end of the year. Don't do that. Always, always, always be super cautious. File it as soon as you can. Don't expect that you're going to get that tolling of continuous treatment because the defense counsel, when they get involved, if it's a close call, they can move to dismiss your case that you didn't comply with the statute of limitations. Uh, and then it becomes a battle of whether it really was or wasn't continuous treatment. But if you've got it and the records are clear, uh, it's something that you can avail yourself of for extra time. I always tell my clients, look, you know, you're running close to the statute of limitations or your statute of limitations expired last month. I think you've got a strong continuous treatment tolling that we can still file it and you'll be okay. But you need to know that this could happen. They could make a motion. We may have that battle down the road and we could lose that battle. Again, if you know me, I'm big on informing your client. Inform, inform, inform. Okay. Uh, so just let them know what you're dealing with, but that's continuous treatment. Another statute of limitations to be concerned about and know about in a medical malpractice case is that involving a minor, okay? Just like in other negligence cases, at least in New York State, you have from the date of majority until the statute starts to run. So in a medical malpractice case, uh, if it happens to someone who's under the age of 18, the malpractice, the statute clock starts running on their 18th birthday. So you usually have two and a half years from their 18th birthday to file a medical malpractice case. But there's one huge caveat to that. And the caveat to that is in no way can it be more than 10 years, okay? So if you're looking at a malpractice uh, at birth, right after the baby's born or for a young child, uh, let's say it happens when they're three years old, that statute is going to expire when they are 13. They do not get the benefit of hitting the majority age 18 in another two and a half years. So it is a total of 10 years um, and or two and a half years from when they reach the age of majority, whichever is shorter. When you think of statute limitations, always think of the worst case scenario. So if it happens to someone who is uh, 16 or 17, they're fine. They have until two and a half years from when they turn 18 to bring it, 
Okay, so keep an eye on that. And when in doubt, do a little bit of homework, uh, but make sure you know these statute of limitations because it can come back to bite you or your client if you're wrong on them. Lastly, in a medical malpractice case, you need to consider whether or not the medical treatment was generated by a municipality. Here in New York, especially in New York City, the New York City Health and Hospitals Corporation runs numerous hospitals and medical facilities throughout the boroughs of New York City. For example, Bellevue Hospital, Jacoby, Coney Island, Kings County Hospital. These are all New York City hospitals. And so you need to comply with the same rules for other New York City entities if you want to bring a lawsuit. That means a notice of claim within 90 days, that means filing the lawsuit within a year and 90 days. You do not get two and a half years as you would with a private entity to bring a medical malpractice case in New York State if it is a city-owned medical facility. You get a year and 90 days and you have to comply with the notice of claim requirements. So be super careful that when you are reviewing a medical malpractice case that you check and make sure the hospital is not a city hospital. And if it is, make sure you're okay within the statute. Very easy to do. You see a hospital's involved, Google it, type it up, go on their website. If it is a city hospital, they'll pop up on the New York City Health and Hospitals website. Otherwise, you'll see that it is not a New York City hospital and you'll be okay. All right. So make sure about that. We can talk about filing a, a motion for a late notice of claim. Uh, you have the ability to do that as in any other case. So if a case does come to you and you think it's a strong case, but the time has run uh, to file a notice of claim and to file it within the year and 90 days, you can try and move to seek leave from a court uh, to file a late notice of claim uh, and therefore file a late pleading. Not easy to do, do your homework, do your research, but it's an option. You're not out of the game completely. Again, if I run into those situations, I'll advise my clients, listen, you know, you had no reason to know, but you're late, okay? And ignorance is not a defense. You thought you had two and a half years. The statute is blown against these city entities. Uh, we think that, you know, we may have a shot at getting approval to file a late notice of claim. We can make that motion, but you need to know it's a good shot that we won't get that and you could be barred, but we're going to try and we'll let you know what happens. Again, inform your client and give it a shot. So that's what you're dealing with with statute of limitations. One more that I want to talk about that falls into the world of medical malpractice. And many of you may have heard of Laverne's Law. That was passed a few years ago. And Laverne's Law in New York State it's a state law that applies to the failure to timely diagnose cancer. And what happened to Laverne was a very tragic circumstance where she didn't know um, when that time had occurred that actually the cancer could have been diagnosed. And so after several years of treatment and following up, uh, when Finally, the lawyer got involved for her, the law firm, and they looked back and saw how far back uh, the failure to timely diagnose occurred and she, her life could have been saved. 
Um, but now the statute had run and she had no recourse. So the law was passed because in these situations of failure to timely diagnose cancer, it's kind of like data discovery. The, you know, think of a patient or a plaintiff that goes for their annual checkups or their annual mammograms, um, and they're told everything's fine, you know, come back next year, and then they keep going back, and then two years, three years goes by, and they find out that on their annual exam or annual mammogram uh, three years prior, something was missed, all right? They'd be barred within the two and a half years. So the way it works now is that they have two and a half years from the date that they discover the diagnosis was missed. Sort of like the year from date of discovery rule, you find out the scissors is in your body. Here, when they find out, wait a second, didn't you have a mammogram every year? Yeah, well, here's what happened. They must have caught it. I'm looking at the old ones, all right? They will have up to two and a half years from the date that they learn of the misdiagnosis, not from the date of the misdiagnosis itself. And up to seven years from the last date of treatment uh, from that provider. So it's a it, that was a huge law that allowed for some really horrific cases to be viable and to be timely filed. So if you're going to take on a medical malpractice case, you got to know these statutes of limitations. You've got to know what happens if it's a city case, if it's a minor, if it's a death case, if it's a cancer case. So I just gave you a primer, but you can do some quick research and you can find out the statutes and the specific laws for all of these. For those of you joining us via podcast, the first attendance verification code for today's course is P-O-D-1-2-4. Again, that's P-O-D-1-2-4. All right, so now you know your statute of limitations, you're within them, you're good on that. Uh, you know this is a case that you need to file to get it moving and commence the action. So what else do you need to make sure you've got before you actually formally commence a lawsuit? Well, you need to have your experts on board. And we talked about this in prior uh, discussions in the series. You must have an expert or experts so that you know your theories that you can allege in your complaint, the theories of malpractice. You need to make sure that you've assessed the liability in the case whether it's strong enough to bring a lawsuit. You need to have an expert who you've consulted with that you are able to determine whether or not you've got a case before filing a lawsuit. You need to know if you have an expert that has assessed the strengths of a causation argument. You need to have a, a handle on the damages in the case. Do not file a lawsuit without the appropriate expert or experts on board. Do not file a lawsuit without knowing the areas of departures, of malpractice, the causation issues. You need to do your homework. This is not a simple case to just file like you might do in an auto case or a premise case where the language is generally the same and you're subbing in the, the party's names. You need to be specific in your complaint as to the allegations and uh, you need to know that you're ready to rock and roll. If you're gonna go down this, you need to go down this path armed and ready for battle, right? I've used these analogies. If you're gonna step into the boxing ring, you need to have a coach, you need to have someone training you, you need to have a corner person. You need to be prepared, otherwise you're gonna get your butt kicked.
All right. So make sure you have everybody on board who's going to assist you in proving and winning your case. All right. Now, you've got your experts. You're good on your statute. Who to sue? Who to name? There are many plaintiff's lawyers out there who I think improperly name the whole world. Right. They will get an operative report. Uh, they'll name the hospital. They'll name every single you know, doctor they see in the medical chart, in the operative report, in the perioperative reports, the anesthesiologist, whoever it is. Um, they'll just name everyone thinking, well, we can always drop them all out. I'm not a believer in that at all. I think it shows a lack of discipline. I think you need to identify who you reasonably believe may be a viable defendant and a culpable party in the case and name those individuals. You always want to name the individual physicians who are the primary uh, tortfeasors based on what your experts tell you. And you always want to name the facilities where those physicians practice. So they may have a private practice. They may have a group practice. Maybe it's a couple of physicians who partnered up, started their own group. Maybe it's called, you know, um, Cobble Hill Physicians Group, right? Or uh, Manhattan Operations uh, Center. Whatever it is, you want to name the physicians and you want to name the medical facility, whether it's a small group, whether it's a hospital, or whether it's a medical center. Generally, the physicians are going to be covered by the insurance for the group, hospital, or facility they work for. So you're gonna to wanna to always name both. But if it's a surgical error in the case, and you know it's a surgical error, don't name the anesthesiologist. If it's an anesthesiologist, and you know there's nothing done wrong in the surgery itself, you don't need to name the surgeon. Now I get it, you wanna be safe, especially if the statute is running. So in the case that I've talked about so far in that I've attached the materials, which I'll talk about, the case where my client went in for knee surgery, had anesthesia problems, ended up in the ICU at a different hospital and ended up dying. I didn't see this. I had it reviewed by lots of experts and the orthopedic surgical experts who I had reviewed the case all said, the surgeon didn't do anything wrong. Okay, the surgeon did everything right here. Um, this was all on the anesthesiologist. And when I spoke to the powers of B at the hospital who I was speaking with, I said, listen, I'm not inclined to name the surgeon. He was a very prominent orthopedic surgeon. And I said, but my concern is that the statute is going to expire and, uh, in four or five months. And what if during discovery, someone points the finger at the surgeon and says, well, the surgeon should have done something about this. I said, then, you know, I've messed up. So we crafted an agreement where the hospital that the surgeon worked at uh, agreed and their lawyers and their carrier agreed prior to me filing the lawsuit, I got them to work it out. And I said, all right, I won't name the surgeon as a defendant, but you're going to agree and stipulate in writing that one if it turns out during discovery that uh, the plaintiff believes they, uh, that uh, the surgeon could be a culpable party, we have leave to amend our complaint to bring in the surgeon and you will not assert statute of limitations. And two, you will agree to produce that surgeon for a non-party witness deposition. And sure enough, the case proceeded. 
at no time did it appear that that surgeon was a culpable party. We did get that surgeon's deposition. And I heard back from my defense colleagues that uh, they were, the surgeon was very appreciative and they were as well, the hospital and the defense counsel were all, they said that was a solid move, not naming him. That a lot of plaintiffs don't realize how, how personally this affects doctors when they're sued. Nobody likes to be sued. Imagine if you got a lawsuit uh, filed against you. Uh, I had that happen to me once. The one and only time my firm was ever sued in 55 years of practice, we were brought in, you know, it was a case that we had referred out and they thought we'd be the deep pockets and we are named and the plaintiff's counsel are like, well, we just brought you in. We know you weren't involved, but that causes issues. That causes issues when I renew my firm's malpractice insurance. We have to, you know, pay our deductible. Um, you know, these are, nobody wants to be sued. So keep that in mind. It'll score you some credit, so to speak, with your adversaries if you only name necessary parties, all right? Now, let's get into the complaint itself. And I've attached the complaint in your materials at page 14. Uh, it's a verified complaint that I filed in this case involving the knee surgery and the subsequent death. And um, I redacted it, even though it's a public filing. I wanna be respectful of all the parties. If I happen to miss a redaction, uh, please uh, bear with me and presume everything is redacted. Uh, this is for your help and your use. But it's a complaint to give you an idea about language, about flow. There's some really good language that's in there that should be in every medical malpractice complaint. So I put it in there for you to use as you see fit. Feel free to copy as much language as you like and modify it to the facts of your case. But what I like to do, first of all, in drafting the complaint, when you look at the caption, you have to decide who to name where. And generally what I recommend doing is naming the most culpable parties, the ones you believe were really the primary tort feasors first, and then go down in order to the least potential culpable parties last. Uh, I also put individual physicians first, then their hospital afterwards. And if you have, as I did in this case, I had two different claims, one against the hospital and the physicians where the uh, anesthesia problem occurred during the knee surgery, and then a different hospital with different physicians where the ICU treatment occurred, um, where we were alleging departures in the treatment rendered there. So I did the individual doctors of hospital one, then named hospital one, then the individual doctors of hospital two, then hospital two. And the primary reason for that is deposition order. There is a, a misbelief in our profession that depositions are required to go in the order of the caption, that the first name defendant goes first in a deposition and the person listed third is not gonna go until the first and second listed people appear for their depositions. Uh, someone out there proved me wrong. I've never seen that that is an actual rule uh, it's just the way things are done. And in fact, when I've had to go to the mat on it, I've been successful in getting depositions out of order. The way that it really works is by the order of notice. Whoever notices the witnesses first, that's truly the order it's supposed to go. Plaintiff doesn't even have to go first. So if the plaintiff notices a defendant first and the defendant doesn't notice the plaintiff first, technically the plaintiff can get the deposition of the defendant first. That being said, 
you don't want to have to go to the mat. You don't want to have to fight and litigate and all that. So I always like to get the deposition of the primary tortfeasor first. So that's one way to go about doing it. Another thing to consider in a caption, some people like to put the corporate entities first. So they'll put the hospital first in a medical malpractice because then when jurors are called into the case at trial, they see it's a case against such and such hospital as opposed to doctor so-and-so. And, -so. and uh, maybe it takes away some of the concern that jurors may not have a problem holding a hospital liable, but they may have a problem holding an individual doctor liable. So those are different reasons. Um, and you can decide how you wanna list the uh, parties in the caption, uh, but I generally, I like to name the first primary tortfeasor physician that we identify, get their deposition first. I don't want the hospital to say, well, you named us first, we can decide who we wanna produce as our witness. I don't like doing that. So uh, take a look. Uh, I know I redacted the names out, but you'll, what I did is I did the doctors, some nurses, then the hospital one. Again, the doctors, the nurses, then hospital two. And that's generally how I like to put it in my caption. Take a look through the language. You're always gonna want to allege that defendant hospital, defendant medical group employed, supervised, controlled the, uh, their employees, their agents, the physicians, uh, that were rendering treatment at their facility uh, at the time of the malpractice. Again, I don't like to go through and take time away by going through the document with you in the materials. That's why I put it in there. Feel free to take a look and copy all the language that is helpful to you and how we allege uh, the different defendants by being an employee, uh, by being licensed to practice medicine, uh, by holding themselves out to the public as being competent to practice medicine in that field. There's certain sort of catchphrases uh, that generally you want to have in a medical malpractice complaint. So I put that complaint in there for your use. Uh, you'll see in New York State, uh, we do not put ad damnum clauses in our complaints. Uh, that means we don't put a sum of money in our complaints in New York State. So you don't need to do that. You just put language in there, as you'll see, saying that the damages exceed uh, the values of the, all the jurisdictions that would have uh, jurisdiction or other courts, lower courts that would have jurisdiction in this case. So you can use our ad damnum language as well. That's that language at the end of the complaint. Lastly, you'll see that the plaintiff's counsel signs the complaint. So my signature is on the complaint in the materials. But then right after that, there's going to be a page called the individual verification. That's why the complaint is called a verified complaint as opposed to just a complaint. As in any negligence case, um, I strongly recommend that you have your complaint verified by the plaintiff. You don't always need to. There's a way around it. If the plaintiff does not reside in the county where your office is, you can verify it uh, on behalf of them. But there's two main reasons that I like to have a plaintiff always verify a complaint, medical malpractice case or otherwise. The first is you never want them to, to be able to allege or claim if they're unhappy that they didn't know you filed a lawsuit or you filed it without their consent or you put something in there that they didn't want you to, to put in there. You always wanna share the complaint with your client. 
explain to them, this is what's going to start your lawsuit, ask them to read it, to verify that everything looks accurate, uh, have it and sign it in front of a notary, and then you're going to file it. And this way, if they read through and they say, wait a second, I'm not happy with what you're saying here or there, you can fix it. So that's reason number one. Your client knows you're informing them you're going to file a lawsuit and they've reviewed it and they've signed off on it. The other reason I always like to have my clients and plaintiffs verify the complaints that initiate the lawsuit is because you can then use that complaint um, in lieu of an affidavit for summary judgment. So this works in medical malpractice cases as well as other negligence cases. Uh, sometimes if your complaint is detailed enough, if the plaintiff verifies it, you can use that um, in a summary judgment motion uh, to assert the details and facts in a case, which you can't do just as a lawyer, and you would need a separate affidavit from your client. So that's a nice, easy way to use that. Uh, sometimes doing a motion for default or a summary judgment motion to have that. So there's a sample individual verification from the case on page 23 of the materials. By the way, when I refer to page number, it is the PDF page that you'll see at the top when you open it up. The pages themselves are not numbered. So if you go to PDF page 23 of the packet, you'll see the individual verification. Um, next in the packet, you'll see on page 24 is the certificate of merit. We spoke about this in the prior uh, parts of this series. In a medical malpractice case in New York State, your complaint must be filed along with a certificate of merit. Not only is it a legal requirement, but as I said, you shouldn't be filing a medical malpractice lawsuit unless you actually have consulted with the appropriate medical expert who tells you there is merit to your case. If you haven't gotten there, don't file it. Unfortunately, I've heard from many, many lawyers and a lot of my one-on-ones that you just saw the commercial for, uh, which if we haven't done one yet, please sign up for one with me. They're always great. Done about 150 of them already. But lawyers will say, I want to run this medical malpractice case by you. And they've done depositions and they're like telling me they've moved for some defense has moved for summary judgment or it's coming up for trial. And I say, well, what's your experts say about all this? Well, I don't really have an expert on board. I kind of spoke to a doctor or I kind of did this and I thought the case would resolve. No, no, no. Don't want to be in that situation. Certificate of merit, you are certifying. You've spoken with a, a physician who has said that there's merit to this claim. So do it, have an expert on board, or don't file the lawsuit, okay? And there's a sample certificate of merit as the appropriate language on page 24. Feel free to use that. That must be filed with the complaint. If you make a mistake and you forgot to file it with the complaint, you can file it uh, you know, subsequently, but make sure you get it filed promptly. Uh, that's also a basis uh, for uh, your case to be dismissed on summary judgment. Uh, the defense can move saying you didn't consult, you didn't comply. It's a technical reason, but get your certificate of merit filed. You'll also see in the materials a uh, notice of e-filing in New York State and in most counties now we e-file. So you have to file a, a notice of e-filing uh, with your complaint. Then you put that all together, you file it, then you issue a summons, which there's a sample in the material of a summons on page 12. And the summons will go with the complaint, the individual verification, 
the uh, certificate of merit and the notice of e-filing. That whole packet will get served with the summons that you'll see on page 12 as a sample. And you get that to your process server and send it out for service. Um, hospitals always have places and medical centers to accept service. They're very easy to serve. And what we did in this case that I gave you the materials for, um, we served all the named physicians and nurses at care of the hospitals where they worked, the hospitals accepted service, and uh, defense counsel uh, represented, defense counsel for each hospital represented all the doctors from each hospital. That's generally what happens. It's usually not a problem. If it's a private practice physician, then you're going to want to serve them at their place of business. Um, and if it's a group, you're going to want to serve that group. Now, venue, I want to talk about just for a few minutes. You'll see in this case that I gave you the materials on, we venued it in New York County. Venue and jurisdiction is the same in a medical malpractice case as it is for any other negligence case. You have to have the appropriate jurisdiction over all of the defendants to bring a claim against them. So here in New York State, if the malpractice occurred within New York State, you can file it in state court and what we call state Supreme Court. That's our trial level court in New York State. But the actual venue, so you have jurisdiction in the state, but the venue is the county, right, where you're going to bring it. And sometimes it makes a difference which county, and you have a choice. And I've mentioned this uh, discussion previously on venue, but here I had a decision to make. Um, the treatment all occurred in New York City in Manhattan. The hospitals and doctors and physicians and nurses were all located in Manhattan. So I certainly had jurisdiction over them in New York County, which is where Manhattan is. But my client, her family, where the decedent um, resided at the time of the malpractice and where the um, estate was established, we had to get letters of administration in the death case. As you know, you have to do that to bring a lawsuit. The letters of administration were also filed and uh, received uh, by the queen surrogate. So we had a choice. We could file in New York County or we could file it in Queens County. And we had to make a decision at my firm of where did we want to file it? We had to weigh out the pros and cons. And we talked about it in-house and I ran it by two colleagues of mine uh, who may be on uh, the um, on this uh, CLE, uh, two former presidents of the academy who are excellent medical malpractice litigators. And I asked them their thoughts. Where would you file this case? Would you file it in Queens or would you file it in New York County? Interestingly, each chose a different county uh, and they had their reasons for it. Um, some said you're gonna get a better jury pool, probably could get better verdicts uh, in Queens. Uh, the others than New York County where they may be more conservative. So they liked Queens. Uh, the other attorney said, I like New York County because New York County has specific judges in specific medical malpractice parts, judges that only handle these cases. They know these cases, um, and you'll probably have a more informed judge uh, for motions and for moving the case. Um, so I thought that was interesting also. And so I had to weigh those both out. And my office is in New York County. I'd much rather go to the courts in New York County, which is a quick uh, subway ride from my office or home, than go to Queens, 
I'm more comfortable in New York County. I've tried many more cases in New York County than Queens. And I ended up going with New York County. And that's how we decided. But could have filed it in Queens. These are the types of discussions that you should have with your partners, your associates, your colleagues. With me, I'm always happy in a one-on-one -on -one to talk about venue choices. The other option sometimes in a medical malpractice case is federal court. Let's say your client came in, or let's say in this case, my client and family were from New Jersey, but they wanted to go to the best hospitals in New York. So all the treatment was in New York. So here you would have an opportunity to bring this case uh, in federal court in New York County in the Southern District. So there are pros and cons to that. It's the same pros and cons I've spoken of in my other uh, programs on state court versus federal court. The pros of federal court is judges orders stick, things move fast, discovery moves, motions usually get decided a lot quick, more quickly. Um, you can move your case a lot faster. Uh, and if you're on your case and you're doing a good job, you're going to do well there in federal court. The, the negative part about that is in federal court, uh, there is a discovery of experts. So your expert is going to be questioned. You're going to get to question the defense's experts. Um, both parties have to put up all of their experts who they want to use. Um, so it's all out there, which is pretty good, but it gets super expensive because each party has to pay to take the deposition of the other expert's time. And when you're dealing with physicians, they're likely going to charge you five to $15,000 to appear for even a remote deposition. And if you want to take the defendant's experts' depositions, that's going to get super costly and expensive, and it's a lot of work. So again, always consider the pros and cons of where you want to file, okay? So that ultimately will get you to commencing the action. You're okay with your statute of limitations. You've figured out who to name. You've figured out how to name them. You've drafted your complaint with your certificate of merit and individual verification. You've e-filed it. You've gotten the summons and served it all. And now you're underway. Okay, and then the next steps, what will happen is once the defendants are all served, they will appear by counsel. Like other cases, you will most likely uh, get a call from defense counsel saying, I just got this file. Uh, may I have an extension of time, which I suggest you always grant an extension of time as a courtesy. Give a 30-day extension if need be. Sometimes we'll get a call or an email from defense counsel, uh, but it's just for the hospital. And we'll say, wait a second, we see you're just answering for the hospital. We also name physicians at the hospital. Are you going to appear for them? And they may say, oh, those didn't work. They're way to me yet. If you give me affidavit as a, of service, just send them to me and, um, and I should be able to answer for them uh, if they were in fact at our hospital. So that's where you wanna have a good, excuse me, rapport with your adversary. When your adversary appears in the case, uh, if your plaintiff or your defense adversary calls you up, look, you're gonna be litig litigating this case with them. Start off on the right foot, give each other courtesies, ask each other questions. Share your theories of the case. You can ask that defense counsel. Say, look, I tried to blue in my face to get this case into like an early mediation or to talk settlement. And no one's, everyone's blowing me off. Maybe you could take a look at it and do that. Um, 
you know, let them know your theories. There's nothing wrong. There's no secrets. Share your theories of the case. Um, and if they don't want to resolve it, then you go. Okay. Um, lastly, after you've served all these documents on the defendants, follow up with your process server and make sure you get affidavits of service. You need them for everybody you've named. So you're going to need it, multiple copies, right? So every single defendant named, if you've named six doctors and two hospitals, you're going to have to serve six packets of the summons and complaint with everything attached on each of them. Okay, you're gonna need an affidavit of service for each named defendant and entity. Then you're gonna to need to file the affidavits of service with court. Again, usually e-filing um, so that it's with the court system that that's been filed when you get them back. So follow for your affidavits of service, file those. And then you're gonna to wanna, to, from the date served, you're gonna to wanna to diary 20 days, uh, see if the answer has come in. If it hasn't, you're going to want to reach out if you know the defendants or the carrier already. Uh, maybe they've responded to a claim letter, say, where's my answer? Uh, and then you go from there. And most likely you'll be hearing from counsel soon and you'll be underway. All right. So there you have it. I've been able to, with three minutes left, um, wrap up my uh, program on commencing the action in a medical malpractice case. For those of you joining us via podcast, the second attendance verification code for today's course is POD328. Again, that's POD328. All right. Well, thanks, Michelle. Um, and before the official hour wraps up, I just want to remind you that the next program will be on April 4th in this series. And we're going to be talking about... Um, experts. Let me see what specifically I want to make sure I have it right. We're going to be talking about discovery and depositions. So there's going to be a lot to unpack and that will be on April 4th. So please put it in your diary. I think it's going to be a Tuesday also. And uh, sorry, if we threw you all off with the change of date uh, for today with uh, it being on a Tuesday. And thank you for making it. And um, hopefully you'll all join me for a one-on-one. -on -one. Hopefully you'll look into the mentorship program. Um, I'm happy to give more information for those who are interested, but if you like these CLE programs, it's basically picture, you know, 20 people on a Zoom with me uh, for an hour and a half or two hours, and we're going through specific topics, and it's interactive and talking and networking, and it's pretty cool, and we just finished our first run of six months with 60 lawyers, and uh, it was really a great program, so I'm hoping to get some new people involved, uh, whether you're a new lawyer or you've been practicing much longer than me. Um, we actually, our biggest group was the 20 plus years of practicing lawyers in the program. So also lastly, the podcast, if you haven't checked it out, please do so. And if you're listening currently, thank you uh, for continuing to listen. All right. So let's get into some Q and A's. Uh, thank you. I see there's a bunch here, so I'm going to try and get through all of them, but feel free to add your comments and thoughts and questions in the Q and A as we go on. So the first question from uh, Joshua, he's asking, why do I think that it's relevant? Uh, why do I think that uh, the carrier or defense counsel, um, you know, aren't settling cases if it's going to cost more money to be paid later? I don't know the answer to that. Obviously, maybe uh, someone uh, attending can chime in and maybe explain why. Uh, but I would tend to think that they're just gun shy. They're gun shy of resolving a case early without having it fully vetted. 
making sure the lawyers unpack everything, making sure the experts get involved and look through everything. So that could be a reason. Another could be volume. They may have so many cases that they just want to put it into the system and they have a way that they work these things. I don't know the answer, but I still, I would strongly encourage everybody uh, that practices in the defense side and the insurance side to really set up systems for evaluating cases early. I, I promise you, I'm the plaintiff's lawyer who's bringing these cases. You will save money at the end of the day. You're gonna save litigation costs, expense costs. I don't know one fellow plaintiff's lawyer who wouldn't openly settle a case for less than they think it would be worth after three years of full litigation to have an early resolution. Um, I explain it to my clients why settling early is good and why it's better to take less now. So I don't have an answer, but um, those are my thoughts on it. Uh, the, Eric is asking the statute of limitations for a foreign object is a year from the date of discovery. Um, Sanford's asking, what are the time limits against the New York City Health and Hospitals for an infant? It's the same. It's still a 90-day notice of claim and a year and 90 days to file uh, against the city. Generally, what you would do in that situation is you would make a motion for leave to file late based on the fact that it's an infant and that you're still within the general statute of limitations for filing a medical malpractice case for an infant. So um, it's it's tricky, but definitely that's usually what I'll do if it looks like uh, you know we're getting the case against the city and it's much later. Usually um, there's a lot of notice. You have to prove nowadays, I believe that to fight back on a motion to file a late notice of claim, uh, the uh, defending entity has to show prejudice. It's usually that they didn't know about it and they haven't had the time to investigate it. In a medical malpractice case, um, you have a better shot at showing notice uh, because if it's, a, let's say something went really bad during birth uh, at a city facility and it's documented all over the hospital chart, um, you can use that to show that they had reason to believe there could be a claim filed and they did have time to look into it. Um, uh, John is asking if I can recommend an expert locating service or database. I'd ask you to uh, go and check uh, the last part we did on getting experts where we talk about that uh, and the academy has some really good uh, sponsors who are expert locating services so take a look at the academy's sponsors um, Andrew thank you for pointing out that the preliminary conference uh, order will sometimes have language that goes in order of the caption um, so that's another reason to be smart about your caption because the order may pro forma say you know the per first person named produce this second person named deposition um, but be aware that if you want to take them out of order and there are no notices that's something you want to address at a preliminary conference or a compliance conference and you can say to the court secretary or to the judge listen i don't want to go in this order there's a reason why we want to go differently and we noticed everybody in a different order and that's a legitimate basis to change what goes into an order in general don't just rubber stamp and sign off on PC orders, preliminary conference or CC compliance conference orders. If you are, if it's one of those orders that's not just pro forma generated by the court and sent to you, but if you appear at a, a conference virtually or in person, fight for what you want, schedule things in the, in the order that you want. 
All right. Now we're talking about, I see that I'm getting a good amount of pushback on talking about having the complaint verified. Um, and that's all good. I do not mind pushback. Uh, people are saying, well, you know, why do you need to have them verify it? They're just going to get cross-examined on it, right? Um, you're never going to win summary judgment by having them verify it. Okay, maybe you're not. So, you know, you don't have to do it that way. I still feel it's the better course. I'm never worried about um, defense lawyers cross-examining my client based on pleadings. They could do it anytime. I don't find that is very helpful. And, um, you know, it's just, I don't, I don't find that that's a big deal ever. I prepare my clients for that. Um, yeah, it's rarely going to be used on summary judgment, but sometimes it is. Sometimes you don't need anything other from your client than the complaint factual. Your summary judgment motions as a plaintiff, if you're making them in these cases, is primarily going to be based upon affidavits from your, um, from your experts. In, my, in the case that I have the materials on, the death case, I didn't have an affidavit from uh, the wife, the surviving wife, uh, but she verified the complaint. And I was able to use that as part of my motion papers. I didn't need a separate affidavit from her. But yeah, primarily it's best for default motions. So you don't need an additional affidavit from your client if you're moving for a default uh, judgment, but you will if it's not verified. And again, it gives you that benefit. It's keeping your client in the loop. I always think it's better to err on the side of clients seeing everything and having them sign off on it. I've been around long enough that I've seen weird scenarios where truly some plaintiffs, oh, I didn't know they filed a lawsuit for me, or I didn't, I didn't authorize them to do that, or, or whatever it may be. It's very helpful to have it verified. But again, it's not required. It's just my suggestion. Um, Stephen is asking me, he notices that I named a nurse in my complaint. And um, if I just saw that they were like in the room, if they were a surgical nurse, why would I name them or is it necessary? So it turns out that um, the nurse that I named in my complaint was a CRNA, um, which is a certified registered nurse anesthetist. So that nurse was actively involved in the anesthesia administration uh, at the time of the uh, anesthesia complication. So that's why we named her. I generally will absolutely not name a support nurse, a nurse who happens to be in an OR or a nurse who's just involved in providing support. They're gonna be covered uh, under the hospital when you're suing the hospital for negligence as an employee and an agent. So you do not need to name a specific nurse unless like in my case, you have reason to believe that they are definitely a uh, potential primary tortfeasor, then you do want to name them. Um, okay. Uh, Vito, hey, thank you for attending the program and I always appreciate your wise and valued contributions. Um, you're saying a signed notice of claim, a complaint, 50H, transcripts, bill of particulars, anything can be shown to them and used on cross at, at trial or at deposition. It can be long sometimes, yes. Um, I generally don't find that to be an effective technique. So all my friends out there that who are defense lawyers, don't waste your time crossing them over documents and pleadings because they have a simple answer. Yeah, I signed it. No, I didn't read it that carefully. 
my lawyer, you know, read it to me or my lawyer drafted it. I quickly looked and signed it so he or she could file it. That doesn't mean they've done anything wrong. I mean, it's just, it's a waste of your time to grill them on documents that you know were prepared by counsel, unless it's an affidavit that they signed specifically alleging things that are an issue in the case, then of course it's fair game. But to cross-examine, you know, uh, plaintiffs on a complaint, you know, I, I always see that as an opportunity that is being used just to bill. And I don't see that as an actual uh, effective use of time or in, in getting discovery, which is really what depositions are meant for. Uh, James, thank you for the nice compliment. Alex, good to see you. Thanks for joining. Uh, Paul is saying another consideration for federal court is the attorney's fees. Is a 25% fee pretty much always granted there? Um, no, that answer is no. Um, I've never had a problem with an attorney's fee in federal court. Um, there's case law out there um, that I don't have to give to you, but if you look for it, you will find it. Uh, that generally, as long as the work is shown to be the type of work customarily performed by counsel and the fee arrangement is agreed to by the plaintiff, uh, then the fee will usually be approved uh, in federal court. Um, it's still going to be a medical malpractice sliding scale retainer, which is still going to end up being probably at the end of the day, uh, a fraction of what a, a, the fee would be and probably less than 25% anyway. So you'll just be asking for the fee in accordance with the medical malpractice sliding scale, which we've talked about. Um, you also, in, in um, medical malpractice cases, you should have language in your retainer. We talked about this early on that gives you the right to seek additional compensation uh, if you're really not getting properly compensated. Um, I did that in this case. Uh, that I've been talking about that I gave you the materials on because it was a very uh, lengthy and seriously litigated case, lots of depositions, lots of experts, lots of time, lots of money. And, um, and so when you submit that request, um, you explain it and justify it to the judge and your client. And then I have no reason to think they wouldn't do that in federal court as well. Okay. Um, thank you, Robin. Thanks, Lorraine. Thank you, Vito. Um, I appreciate all the nice compliments and feedback. Um, all right, where are we going to questions? Lots of great uh, compliments, which I thank you all for. Um, doctors have to approve, unlike an auto case. That's what Andrew Frank is talking about. We talked about these consent policies, um, which really isn't for this topic, but generally uh, some physicians have uh, a right of refusal, basically, that if they don't sign off on settling, uh, the case doesn't settle. Generally, there's an end around to that, um, that the hospitals or insurance companies can take, uh, but there are things called consent policies. And so if you think you have a good case and defense counsel tells you, sorry, we're taking a no pay, we'll see you at court, we're not going to offer you a dime, that will likely be the reason why. Okay. Um, Joshua, I hope you're not offended by these questions. Do you think you're doing your clients a disservice by writing your personal injury book and CLEs? <laughs> Could the defense attorneys use the book to hurt your business? Joshua, I'm not offended at all. Uh, there's pretty much no questions that I find to be uh, inappropriate. And it's a good question. People are like, wait, you open up your playbook. You brag about, hey, this is my playbook and my CLEs. This book that I wrote um, that I encourage you all to get. 
I think it's really helpful. And all the money goes to my charitable causes. I don't do this for profit. Um, I do it to help people. And that's why I wrote the book. It's based on the CLE series of the same name that many of you attended. And people are going to litigate the way they're going to litigate. And I am not giving away some proprietary secret. What I'm sharing with everybody, and I'm hoping what you all take from my programs and my podcasts and my books, is what I believe, and a shout out to my dad, who I wrote a preface to in my book, Guy Smiley, many of you know. Um, he's doing well, by the way. He's going to be 85 this summer and still plays tennis twice a week. But I learned so much from my dad about the right way to handle all these cases, and I've been doing it so long, and it's second nature. And I think everybody should learn because not everybody has had the opportunity to learn. So I'm sharing what I think is the right way to handle a case. Um, it's nothing that can be used against me or nothing that can be used to hurt me at trial or hurt my clients. If anything, I think the defense counsel on these programs and defense counsel who reads my books, um, they'll say, thank you, um, this is helpful. And now I know what plaintiffs try and do and I get it more. And if it makes them better, bring it, you know, I'm ready. I'm always going to adapt and I'm going to try a case no matter how I write my book or lecture. I'm going to try my case differently than you are. I'm going to question out a deposition differently than you are. We're all different. We all do things differently, but it, the same sort of structure applies. The same mindset should apply. And that's what I share. So hopefully that comes across. Uh, I'm going to continue to lecture as long as I can. I'm going to continue writing books. My next book uh, will be on trial skills coming out this summer. So keep a lookout for that again, based on the program that I did with the Academy on Trial Skills. So thanks for bringing that up, um, Josh. All right. Um, thank you, Dolores and Morris. Um, all right. We have a defense point of view from Deneen. Uh, why agree to plaintiff's set of non-independent records and plaintiff's plaintiff-friendly argument when said defending entity has the right to investigate their own case and find out their own value, if any. All right, so what I'm understanding from Deneen to say is, listen, in the early phases, you're not, there's no discovery. So we're assuming you're giving us all the records and that what you're giving us is the whole picture. But shouldn't we request, do it through authorizations, get the actual records, find that dirt, see what's there, and make our own decision. And I agree, Deneen, you absolutely should. And, you know, what I try and do is I give every scrap of record. I say, is there anything else you want? Do you want an authorization now? Um, whatever you need so you can evaluate the case early. I agree. If some plaintiff's lawyer says, here's 20 pages of different records, this is my case. If you don't like it and you want more, we'll go to trial. I get it. But if you're representing a physician or a hospital and the primary medical negligence occurred and you can see the basis for that in your own records, then use it. Use the records. Use, ask the plaintiff's lawyer, say, write me a letter spelling out your theory of departures of what your experts are telling you. Okay. Put the challenge back on the plaintiff to give you what you need. Because I've done that. And I did that in this case that I've been talking about today. I wrote a very detailed letter to both hospitals saying, I've retained experts. Check me out. Check out my firm. You know that I'm, 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 if I'm saying I retained experts, 
I did. Maybe I'm bluffing. They have to make that decision. But I spelled out specific theories of departures. And I said, take these, run it by your experts, give them the records, have them look at it and let me know. And then a response I got from one hospital was, I ran these by, here's what my experts said, point by point. And we feel we can defend it, but maybe we'll talk. What's the other hospital saying? The other hospital got back to me and said, oh, we need time, we'll review it. Okay, thank you, thank you. Oh yeah, you know, four or five months go by of me following up. Yes, we did have it finally reviewed and our experts show, you know, there's just no departures here at all. And I'm like, really? Yep, they say nothing was done wrong, not even questionable, it's so you're gonna need to file suit. You know, and then that tune changed, you know, after litigation. But if they actually took the time and actually did have outside experts, uh, I don't think hospitals should use their own doctors and in-house doctors to evaluate these claims. Um, if it's an anesthesia issue, then the carrier or the hospital, bring in an outside anesthesiologist who you would to be an expert in your case. Have them review it like they would in the case. Ask them, like what I say I do, I always ask my experts on the plaintiff side, I say, tell me how you defend this. If you're hired by the hospital, if you're hired by the defendant doctor, how would you defend this? How would you recommend to them to defend it? Okay, I want to know that so that I can prepare and look into it. On the defense side, you should do the same. You should ask your defense doctor, say, all right, but if you were re representing the plaintiff, do you think you could come up with any strong arguments? You know, put your other hat on. So I think that if um, on the defense insurance side, I think you can get what you need to evaluate the case. I agree you never should settle a case without having the information, but if you can get it before a lawsuit, why not? I've been big on doing like arbitrations lately, recommending a high low or recommending early mediations if I'm hired to defend a case, or if a, one of my colleagues from a hospital or defense firm wants to run a case by me, I'd say, listen, don't let them file suit. Why don't you tell them, give me this, give me that. Why don't you set a date for a mediation with someone you all agree on for five months down the road, agree to exchange a certain amount of records, and go to mediation. Maybe you could hammer it out. It's always tough for a plaintiff. When you offer money and you say, take it or leave it, and if you leave it, you're going to have to litigate and we'll, we'll talk again at trial in four years. You know, it gives you leverage on the defense side and it's a smart use of your, of your um, resources. So something to think about. How frequently, Charles is asking, how frequently is arbitration used in MedMal cases? I don't think I've ever done it in a MedMal case, even though I just suggested it. I'd love to do it. I don't see why not. I always try and push uh, high-low arbitrations, you know, do a low, do a high, go in and knock it out if you feel that you both agree on the arbitrator. So I would always be open to doing that. All right, John is asking, how often if ever do I seek to recover from a doctor's personal assets versus just the MedMal policy limits? Really good question. Generally, what you'll see for a physician's policy is usually a total of 2.5 million in coverage if they have the typical policies we see from the big insurance carriers. It's usually like a 1 million primary and a 1.5 million um, excess. Correct me if I'm wrong out there, but generally, or maybe it's reverse 1.5 and one. Um, so 
you know, in order to go after assets, it's tricky as in any other case. I mean, are you going to turn down a tender of a $2.5 million policy and then risk going to trial, which you're going to have to do? I mean, you could, you could flex and say, we're not going to settle for the policy limits unless the doctor contributes, but you got to have a pretty strong case and you got to have a lot of damages and then maybe it is worth it. I haven't run into that situation. Um, I've run into situations, you know, very rarely where you really go after someone's assets. Usually in the big, big damages cases, um, there's, there's sufficient coverage I've seen, or there's hospitals and they have lots of layers of coverage. Um, so it's very rare that I would go after personal assets. Uh, it would have to be a unique circumstance. I can't recall ever doing that in a, in a medical malpractice case. Um, ah, the question uh, that Peter is saying that someone's saying, is there a 25% cap for suing the USA in federal court? Yeah, so if it's a federal tort claims act, um, you can look into what the fees are there, uh, but you wouldn't be bringing a Federal Tort Claims Act. Well, I guess you could if you're suing the VA. Okay, I've seen that. So the VA hospital, if you want to bring a medical malpractice case against them, they are state, and you have to file that in federal court under the Federal Tort Claims Act, unless, in my opinion, they took off the wrong leg. <laughs> I mean, I, I just run from those cases. The, I've done a lecture for the Academy on the Federal Torts Claims Act, and I equated to Indiana Jones trying to step on the right stones to get to that, you know, jewel at the end without the stuff flying at them. There's so many pitfalls and traps with the Federal Torts Claims Act. It's just, it's a nightmare. And there's limited coverage. There, there is just everything about it is bad. So, um, so I would stay away from suing. Uh, anybody under the Federal Torts Claims Act. And if there's anyone out there who likes those cases, please let me know and I'll put you on my referral list. All right, Trisha, don't know if this is appropriate for this session, but your comment about clients, I signed it, but didn't read it. Look, of course your client's supposed to read everything before they sign it. But let's say I have them sign off on a verified bill of particular. I have them sign off on a complaint. You can see on my complaint, I talk about propofol infusion syndrome. You know, what layperson, what client's going to know what in the world that is? How many of you know what propofol infusion syndrome is? So if they want to say, oh, you signed off on this? Did you sign it without knowing what propofol infusion syndrome is? Uh, and when I say I signed but didn't read, they can say, look, I skimmed it. My lawyer explained everything to me. Are you asking, do I know everything that's in here and, and agree that it's all accurate? I have no reason to doubt it. So, of course, I wouldn't encourage a witness to say they signed something without reading it. Um, so sorry if I, if I relayed that improperly. All right. Um, does that work with informed consent in the waiver signed by all patients before surgery? Trish is asking about, I didn't sign it or, or read it. So look, we're lawyers. We all know that I didn't read it, but I signed it. Doesn't hold water if you're dealing with uh, a legally binding item that you sign right? You sign it, you sign it. If you sign a waiver, you signed it. Whether you, If you didn't read it, that's not a defense. So that doesn't get you out of anything. But have I had cases? Probably 99% of people who go in for a procedure and are given a waiver form to sign when they're at the hospital, usually on the gurney in their robe, you have to sign these forms, you have the consent form, you have this, you have that. Nobody reads those. They just don't. I don't even read them. 
and I'm a lawyer. I, you'd be amazed at how many waivers that I sign because the bottom line is if you don't sign it, you're not going to get the surgery, right? And you agree you want the surgery. So if I don't sign a waiver at the, at the entrance to Lime Rock Park, I'm not driving my car on that track. doesn't matter what the waiver says. So yes, a lot of clients don't sign waivers. Um, and it's all right for them to say they didn't read it. They didn't read a waiver. They didn't read an informed consent because not everybody reads that. I'm sure 95% of the people and the lawyers on this program don't read consent or waiver forms and they sign it. So there's nothing wrong with saying that. It doesn't mean that that's a defense or that gets you off the hook, but you're being honest. We, a lot of times we all sign things that we don't read because we know it's pro forma. We know we have no choice. We know if we wanna get treatment by this doctor, we gotta sign whatever form they stick in front of us for the most part, okay? Um, do, John's asking, do I normally sign engagement agreements with experts? Um, usually not. It's up to the expert. I always do whatever they feel comfortable. Um, usually what'll happen is, however we get to working with them, I'll say, how do you work as far as billing? Uh, some will say, I require a retainer, send me a check in X amount and I'll work off of that. Some just say, I'll bill you and they send me a bill. Some like to have a detailed uh, document signed in writing. Most of my experts for the most part, just an email back and forth. Um, here's what I'm gonna charge you. Is that good with you? Yes, all right, send me everything and I'll send you a bill. Uh, again, I like to do whatever my experts feel comfortable with. And um, I rarely have any problems with, with my experts. All right, thank you, James. Matthew uh, saying, plaintiffs should remember to do an audit on the records produced by defendants by requesting the original documents to compare with what has been produced and have a verification by the hospital testing the records are complete. Yep, great point. You always wanna do that. Um, let's see, what else do we have? Checking metadata for alteration. Uh, people have done that. There's a lot of talk about metadata. For those of you who don't know what that's all about is that most hospital records and a lot of medical facility records are now all done by computer. They, they're forms they fill in and they type things in. So by requesting metadata, you're sort of requesting backend stuff. It's kind of hard to get, um, which could show if something was maybe erased or deleted. Um, and if you have a good faith basis for thinking that something was changed in the record, then you get it. That's why it's always good that you get the record set that you request, then you, in discovery, always request the set from the defendants themselves. And yes, always compare the record. So if something looks amiss, if uh, something just jumps out as seeming wrong, maybe in the wrong font or handwriting, something's weird, then you go for that uh, and take a look. All right. Kenneth Lang is asking, have I ever had an expert refuse to testify at trial? The answer to that is no. And I'm going to tell you why. Because when I retain the experts, I specifically ask, are you on board for this case? And are you willing to testify at trial? And if the answer is, I'm on board, but I won't testify at trial, then I have to make a decision of do I want to use this expert to, for my certificate of merit, for my theories of negligence and departures, and help me build up the case and hope it's good enough uh, to go as far as I can, knowing that I'll have to get another expert to testify? Um, that's the only way I'll do that. Otherwise, 
I'll usually say, listen, uh, I'm going to have to get a different expert then because um, I need someone I know is in it to the whole way to testify at trial. So you should not be in a situation ever where your expert, as you get closer to trial, is like, yeah, sorry, I'm out. I just don't feel comfortable on this. Um, you need to know right off the bat. And there should be continuity from the, before you file the lawsuit throughout the case, preparing for depositions. We'll talk about this next time. You're definitely going to want to be meeting with your experts to prepare for depositions. So that's another time where you're like, you're on board, right? You're going to testify at trial if need be, right? You're all good if I need you for an affidavit for summary judgment, right? And you want to make sure they're on board and you want to reaffirm that you're there with them. You're going to pay their bills timely. You appreciate the time they spend. So you're going to pay them when they take all this time to look at stuff, to prepare you, to sign affidavits. Um, but yeah, you need to make sure your expert's on board. I think everything was covered. So I'm going to sign off. And if you anybody wants to, you can always reach out to me. You can see on the screen behind me uh, all of my contact info. Uh, I encourage you to sign up for one-on-one. -on -one. I'd love to get to know you a little bit more and just talk, which is what we do. And um, check out the podcast, check out the book, check out the shop, and uh, check me out April 4th, part four. Depositions and discovery. Big topic, important topic. We'll keep it going and uh, have a great rest of your day.